Hi, welcome to Pathways. This is the podcast where we speak with Grenadians and other West Indians pursuing careers in the STEAM fields. Today's discussion is going to be another interesting one, so stick around. We hope you find something that resonates and helps keep you going along your journey. Jude Phillip is a Grenadian currently living and working in Baltimore, Maryland. He was recently featured in the local media with his appointment as Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering with a secondary appointment in Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at his alma mater, Johns Hopkins University, where he's also a core member in the Institute for Nanobiotechnology. In his research lab, coined the Philip Time Lab, he studies biological aging dynamics as it relates to health and disease by combining fundamental engineering approaches with translational aging and oncology research. On this episode, Jude and I talk about the journey to starting a career in academia, the power and importance of networking, and about wanting to give back to our country. I hope you enjoy our chat, and if you like what you hear, or have any feedback for us, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening today. Hi, Jude, and welcome to Pathways. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to be here. Of course. So uh, just to get started a little bit, um, uh, you're currently on the East Coast of the US. Are you in New York? I'm in Baltimore, actually. So I just moved um, from New York to Baltimore about six weeks ago because I just started a faculty position at Johns Hopkins University, which is in Baltimore. Right. Okay. And so you grew up in Grenada. Yes. Um, Which part of Grenada did you grow up? So I grew up in in the countryside, in the country, in St. Andrews, um, in a village called Maryville. Okay. So it's um, not that far from Greenville. Yeah. Um, I lived there, but all, my primary school um, schooling was done in St. Andrews Methodist School, which is in the heart of Grenville. Okay. And then I did um, secondary school in Presentation Brothers College. So ah, in St. George's. Yeah. <laughs> UC, yes. Okay. All right. So describe yourself a little bit uh, in your primary, secondary school years. Like what kind of student were you? What were you interested in? What didn't you care about as much? What was that like? Um, I think... I was always interested in science. So even from my early age in secondary school, um, in primary school and secondary school, I liked more, um, you know, the science classes. So I had an older sister who was a year ahead of me. So I would kind of get a, get some idea of what's coming later based on her own work. Um, I didn't do too much in terms of sports, um, although I did run tr- um, track and field my first year of PBC. But it was only because I was the only person in my age group for the house. So I pretty much had to do every event. But um, other than that, I was um, I played basketball every now and again. But I wouldn't say I was very athletic. Yeah. Okay. Just the average student, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My mother was a my mother is a teacher still. So um definitely there was that structure of um studies and doing your homework on time yeah. and when you come home you know not just going to watch tv but pretty much like you do make sure your homework's done you get a little bit of time to watch tv because in Grenada um I think like cartoons kind of finish at, at like three or four o'clock right so you know you get home you try to do your homework as quick as you can to catch you know 30 minutes of it and then right. um yeah and so forth but yeah okay More typical so um, you said you were always interested in the sciences a bit. Uh, what led you then to go into chemical engineering for your undergrad? Yeah, so um, it's a funny story. Um, so my sister from the beginning always wanted to be a doctor, right? And she used to always talk about it. And I remember maybe around the age of seven, we were having this conflict, you know, conversation between uh, my parents, my sister and I. And um, you know, she was talking about she wanted to be a doctor. And I want, I did not want to be a doctor, right? So I felt like, okay, I want to do something um, that's more exciting to me. And um, so she would say, oh, but I'm going to help people help uh, in terms of like treating them when they have diseases and so forth. And, you know, the little sibling rivalry in the sense of I wanted to get one up on her in the sense. So I said, 
well, since you're going to treat the patients, I'm going to make the medication that you're going to use to treat the patients to kind of like, you know, to be one of. And um, I didn't know who were the people who made the medication. I just assumed, you know, it had to be some kind of scientist. And then I remember my father um, suggesting um, to me one day that chemical engineers are the actual, actually the ones who manufacture and make the drugs that are used in the clinic. Mm -hmm. So I think um, from that age, I had this interest in being a chemical engineer, right? Although I didn't know what that entailed. I had never met another chemical engineer, much less an engineer on, in Grenada, right? right. So um, the first engineer I met was actually up here in the US when I started school. So my entire view of what engineering or chemical engineering was, was based on what I read, right? And it's interesting because once I started taking the classes, started meeting some of these engineers, it's very different to what you envision or imagine chemical engineering to be. Right. And although I still had in the back of my mind, um, I want to be the one to make the medication, make the drugs that are used to treat the patient, um, my interests sort of like, um, I guess you could say matured into um, more, not, not only in terms of drugs and therapeutics, but in terms of developing technologies that, that physicians can use um, to treat patients and to predict how patients are going to respond to drugs, right? Because we see that, you know, there's a lot of patients, there's a lot of drugs, but not all drugs work in all patients, right? So trying to figure out, are there things we can measure that we can, you know, use later down the road to predict who's going to respond, predict what drug is best for them, and predict what therapy is best for them, yeah. Right. Okay, so in your transitioning from Grenada to the U.S. to then study chemical engineering. What did you, how did you prepare for that? Since you didn't really have much background on what it was, did you just do your own research and reading or was it just stuck in your mind that this is what I have to do and I'm going to figure out a way to do it anyway? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so I did, I did well in sciences in high school and, you know, I always wanted to do engineering, but, you know, being in Grenada, there's limited resources, limited, um, opportunities um, in that area, right? But right after Ivan, I was, I think I was a first year um, student at TAMCC. So I just finished CXC um, doing TAMCC. And then there was a call for applications for scholarships um, to study engineering. And that's what I applied to. And they selected, I think it was four people to do engineering. Okay. One for chemical, one in mechanical, um, one in civil and I think one in electrical. So pretty much all four of us Grenadians were in the same school. So we went to City College of New York. And um, I think in a sense, like we helped each other out in terms of that transition. I had read a lot in terms of chemical engineering and um, just online, you know, you Google some stuff and you read up about what it is that chemical engineers do. And you, you, can read, you can find a lot of information in terms of how, what chemical engineers do in the energy industry or the energy sector in terms of like petroleum manufacturing and, and oil and gas and so forth. Mm -hmm. But in order to find out more and what they do on biology, it was a little bit more searching that I had to do. Um, but I think, you know, a combination of reading, a combination of talking to people and, um, you know, having like a support system that even though they weren't experts in that area, they would still kind of, you know, you'd gain insight as you, as you converse together in that sense. Right. Yeah. So once you did start that degree, initially going in, where you're, you're still in the line of thought of, you know, making medications and so for patients. And then how did that perspective change throughout your program, yeah. if at all? Yeah, it definitely did change. It changed a few times. So I think um, if, if we back up a little bit before that, finishing high school, um, wanting to do chemical engineering. At one point, it, it's changed a little bit from developing uh, drugs and therapeutics to like developing weapons, right? Like weaponry, bioweaponry or what. But um, that didn't last very long um, because, you know, I had a deep interest in that. And when I started City College, um, research was something that I really wanted to do. So I got involved in research very early um, and I started off in the chemistry department. So, you know, doing, working with um, medicinal compounds in the beginning, more like characterization. But um, 
I quickly joined a chemical engineering lab where I started working with particles, right? So we're developing biosensors, right? So we wanted to see whether we can test um, the presence of cholera from, from very small liquid samples, right? And then I had an experience, um, a summer research experience where I was um, selected to be in a program at Stanford University in California. And I went there for 10 weeks to study nanoparticle drug delivery. So that was kind of like a, was it still is a pretty hot topic in chemical, chemical or bioengineering, where you essentially try to encapsulate these drugs into these um, polymers and make them very small that you can, uh, you know, change the kinetics and the circulation within the body. So I, I went from, you know, develop, having interest in weaponry to developing biosensors to developing ways to deliver the drugs. And then ultimately, um, which is what I'm doing now, is more developing technologies, right? So it's kind of like at the interface of many of these different aspects. We're not developing um, ways to deliver drugs, but we're developing ways to predict how drugs are going to respond and how people are going to respond to these drugs. So it's kind of like, it's still in a general realm, but it's just a different aspect and a different question we're asking. Right. Okay. So... So you were always interested in research. Um, at what point did you make the decision to pursue a PhD? Yeah, I think in the back of my mind, a PhD was the step, the step I was going to take, right? So okay. the plan was after my undergrad, I would you know, get into a PhD program and pursue that. Of course, um, being an international student in the US, um, the path it sometimes is not as linear. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my entire, my family, my immediate family was back home um, in Grenada. So, you know, also the thoughts of whether I would, you know, just go back home to Grenada and try to find a job there or continue studies here was definitely something that I had a lot of thought and conversations about. Um, but I think, but my parents um, were the ones who really encouraged me to, if, if I really want to do a PhD, just, just keep at it, just, uh, you know, go straight ahead and, um, you know, because if I stop, let's say, to go find a, a job or come back, then it will be harder to kind of make that transition. But um, so that's what I ended up doing in that sense. But between undergrad and PhD, I, um, I applied to PhD programs and I applied to, um, to jobs. I didn't apply to typical engineering jobs, but I applied to um, more teaching jobs, like Teach for America, I applied to and then had to essentially decide between taking a job at Teach for America versus um, going on to do my PhD. Okay. And ultimately, it looks like you took that PhD route. Yes, yes, I did. So um, I know that right now you're doing some research in bi biological aging. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. what, what was the decision-making process going into your PhD and deciding on what your thesis would be? Yeah, so in um, so starting my PhD, it, it was a very interesting path because um, in I studied chemical engineering at the City College of New York, and that chemical engineering curriculum is very it's very classical in the sense of it doesn't have much biology, and it teaches you more the physical sciences fundamentals of chemical engineering, right? So it's more of a classic chemical engineering um, education with very uh, low amounts of biology, actually no biology classes. So I went to Hop I chose to go to Johns Hopkins, um, particularly because they had a very strong medical program. So they have you know, a number one ranked hospital and medical school and they have very strong engineering. So I wanted to have that pairing that you could have experts in engineering and medicine that I could potentially work, to, uh, work along with, right? So when I got to um, Hopkins, um, there was a learning curve because I didn't have much bio experience. I, had bi I did biology in high school in Grenada and one year of time CC, um, that's pretty much all the biology I had. And then my own reading. So. There was a learning curve. There's a lot of uh, catching up for me to do, but um, it wasn't wasn't easy. But you know, just having to stick with it. And my first projects were dealing with um, one projects with cancer. So we were developing these um, technologies to measure different properties of cells, so that 
we can classify cells in, in terms of their cancer, right? Whether it's stage one versus stage four, can we determine the stage of the cancer based on the properties of the cells, be it um, how the cells move or how they look or the kind of um, forces that they exert, right? So I was very interested in cancer, but um, I quickly realized that in studying cancer and more or less studying disease, there's a common link in the sense of age, right? So age is a big risk factor for many diseases, cancer, um, diabetes, high blood pressure, all these different diseases, some of which um, are very prevalent in Grenada, right? Mm -hmm. So, and very prevalent among um, black people in the US, right? So there was definitely that commonality um, in that sense. So I started getting very interested in aging and I reached out to, um, a physician, a geriatrician um, at Hopkins, and we started working a lot together um, in terms of developing um, some new ideas around aging and disease, right? And as an engineer, I felt that the place I could make have the most impact is developing maybe technologies that we can, again, measure properties of cells that could tell us about disease, right? And what I, the, the way I thought about it is in the sense of, Aging happens across, across scales, right? And when I say scales, I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so when we look at people, we, we can generally tell their age based on features or dysfunction, right? So we can look at a 60-year-old person and you know, gen be generally able to tell that that person is around 60, right? Because of some features that we see. So that I call more the physiological level of aging. Right? right? But before those dysfunctions happen in the person, there's changes that happen in cells, right? So these cells start, you know, doing some crazy things and they start acting dysfunctionally and that propagates to disease and that's what we see, right? At the person level. Mm -hmm. And then in the cells, they're actually made up of molecules, proteins, genes, um, RNA, and the, the arrangement of these different proteins within the cell. So that's kind of like the molecular level, right? And if you go all the way back up to the other side of the scale, you can see groups of people having similar phenotypes, right? So if you study, when I think of aging, I think of aging in four scales, right? Molecular, cellular, the person level, and groups of people. So I believe that studying the cells gives you an advantage because you may be able to predict before diseases happen just because cells go dysfunctional before the, the person manifests disease, mm. right? So okay. that's kind of like the underlying part that I use um, to study aging, but really to try to get at a question of disease, right? So aging is a natural process that happens. We all go through different dysfunction and you know, some of us develop diseases, some more than others. So what are some of these differences in people's cells that predispose them to disease. So I'm using aging as a way to get to disease. Got it. Okay. And so that's something that um, you just kind of stumbled across during your research period and kind of drew from different places to realize that this is a viable path to take, right? Um, how do you see that work then developing? And like, where do you draw your inspiration from to keep pursuing that research? So I, there's a couple of places that I, that I draw my inspiration from. And, um, you know, doing research is, is not that easy because most times you get that, you don't get the results that, that you want, like, right? And the experiments are challenging and, you know, like mm -hmm. figuring through that. I think definitely um, having like a good support system is, is definitely critical, right? Because, you know, 90% of the times you get bad results, 10% of the times you get something that actually works. So definitely stay motivated is one thing. And also just um, trying to uh, be not only for myself, but people around me uh, in terms of health, right? So I grew up, um, growing up, like health was a big part of um, my upbringing, right? In the terms of, my belief system um, in my faith that, you know, my religious beliefs, uh, health is something that should be forefront, right? So if there are ways that we can enhance the health so we could delay some of the aspects of disease, 
And that is something that, that pushes me, right? As well as knowing people um, with various diseases, cancer, um, there's people with cancer in my family, people with diabetes, high, high blood pressure in my family. So there's a combination of, you know, the, the support system that drives me to keep me encouraged, as well as I have an eye on the problem, which is, you know, near to me um, in people in my family and, and close friends who are affected by some of these diseases, as well as the notion that we were created to be healthy, right? And there are certain things, whether it be genetic or environmental that impacts our health. So how can we go back or bring our bodies back to that state where we can be healthy and age gracefully in that sense? So those I think are three of the key pillars that kind of keeps me motivated, keeps me going, mm -hmm. even when um, you know it, it gets challenging because you have to convince these organizations to give you money to do the research, right? So Great. yeah, so I think if, if you don't have like these ways to keep you going, then it's easy to just lose sight of why and maybe just pivot to something else that may be easier to get money to or funding to do it. Right. So I think, um, yeah, that's what keeps me going in that sense. So what has the feedback been for you in terms of reaching out to these organizations and getting people to kind of get on board with your program? I mean, you've come a long way at this point. You're actually yeah, you know, yeah. head of a research lab now. So yeah. um, what was that process like? So I, I'm new, so I'm still kind of like getting getting the hang of it. But um, so I, I, I definitely have submitted a couple of grant applications and some of them have been funded, some haven't. But it, it's a learning process in that sense. But I think um, at least now being a young, a, a new assistant professor, um, I take inspiration in the sense that I, so I apply to different programs, right, to become a professor. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a very competitive process. And I pretty much had to write out and explain my research vision and my research plan, right? And I think the fact that I was able to convince multiple professors at multiple different institutions um, and to see the excitement of the, what I'm proposing and then having them give um, good feedback um, in the sense of, you know, different places offering me the positions to be faculty with them. Mm -hmm. I think that gives me um, a little bit of encouragement in the sense that, you know, the ideas are not completely crazy, right? So <laughs> it may not be, you know, the, the next thing you would think of, but there is, you know, scientific backing to it. And there is potential for some of the work that I'm doing. Right. And that's important sometimes to get that, you know, validation, that feedback that, you know, it's not yeah. just you, but other people out there do support what you're doing. So yeah. that's great to hear. That's true. Um, okay, so um, I have a couple questions. I'll go this, this way first. Um, mm -hmm. Growing up, did you, either growing up or even after you you came here and you started your work, did you have any you know, formal or informal mentors or people who you looked up to and were able to work along with to help guide you at all? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, starting back with schools in Grenada, my you know, elementary school, high school, um, and TAMCC, right? Although I only did one year, I did have interaction with some of the, the, um, the teachers and professors there. So although they may not have been specific mentors for certain, for in, specifically in the field, <clears throat> there were people who, you know, my, my teachers who encouraged me and, you know, essentially would give me, um, would challenge me in some cases to essentially like keep pushing or push the envelope a little bit more. I remember having chemistry teachers um, in PBC who Maybe at some times, I don't know, maybe they thought I was annoying in terms of some of the questions I would ask because I, I asked a lot of questions, right? Um, and I would always be putting up my hand asking a question, what about this, what about this? And um, sometimes they would give me almost, um, they would talk to me after classes and so forth. And then they'd be like, oh, you should consider this or think about this. So those, I, I consider them, I consider it to be mentoring that happened to me more at um, the younger ages. And then once I start, once I got into um, starting my undergraduate degree to do my bachelor's, 
Um, there were professors in the department that fulfilled more of a, a structural mentoring um, roles, right? In the sense of they would guide in terms of what I should be thinking of, different programs or different awards that or scholarships I should apply for, different research experiences I should apply for and so forth. And then in my PhD, I had a very good mentor um, for, who was my PhD advisor, right? And I had uh, other mentors as well. Mm -hmm. But um, my PhD mentor was, he meant a lot to, and he still is, we're, all, we're still very close in that sense, but he goes beyond just the classic mentoring as in, you know, like guiding, oh, you should consider this or consider that. But he actually goes, he vouches for me in that sense, right? And that's something I, I truly appreciate. I remember when I was applying for, um, for positions, he would be, you know, he would read over my application packages. If he knew people in the department that I was applying to, he would send them an email and say like, oh, look out for like Jude's application and so forth. But I remember um, one thing that stuck out to me the most in terms of his mentoring was, so during my... During my postdoc, I um, at at some point I started questioning a little bit in terms of what I wanted to go in the industry mm -hmm. or continue in academia, right? And that's something in PhD you struggle with, in postdoc you struggle with whether you want to continue on the path that you on or whether you want to do something different, right? And I remember I was strongly considering go, you know not continuing the academic growth. And I remember one day he came to New York because he's, um, he's a professor in Baltimore as well. So he came to New York, I was in New York and we met up um, after a session that he had. And it was maybe at 8 p.m. in the evening. And he stayed and talked with me until I think like past midnight. So we were pretty much just like sitting um, on like the side of the street close to, close to Times Square. And he pretty much like listened to all the points that I was making as to why I don't think I want to continue in academia in that route. And I remember um, over many, we had many conversations over the years and he would always listen to, you know, my explanations of why I want to be a professor and like why I want to do this and, you know, that what drives me in that sense. And in a way he was almost able to, remind me of why I loved doing, um, you know, what I do okay. and why essentially my calling was to be a professor in academia, to drive these research questions and also to teach. And I remember, I, I think that to me is maybe one of the most profound um, mentoring aspects that I had. So it's not only about people who just, you know, guide you or give you advice, but it's, you know, a combination of, you know, giving advice, but also being there when you need somebody to talk to it in that sense, right? So more in a professional sense. Um, so that's why I always say a support system is definitely very important. You need support system in, you know, in a professional sense, but you also need support system in the sense of, you know, like friends and family and so forth. And that is something um, I try to actively keep at the forefront of my mind that I can be um, that mentor, that help to someone else who may need it um, in terms of, um, you know, whether it's giving advice or, you know, you know, giving suggestions and, you know, encouragement and so forth. Right. So that's, Leads very well into the next question, but I want to kind of circle back on something you just said, um, mm -hmm. because that I feel is something that can get lost a lot in those more professional relationships where, um, especially I feel like for us coming from the Caribbean where we tend to separate our interactions a lot more where you have like your friends and your family and then you have professional level and it's just like yes sir yes ma'am yeah. um, and you don't build those genuine connections which is what really helps you to, you know, develop mentorship relationships like that, where people actually know you on a more personal level and can give you good recommendations rather than just saying, oh, this is what you should do. Yeah. Um, so that's really important, I feel, for people to, to understand and to be able to open them, themselves up to relationships yeah. like that. Yeah, and that, that's true because, you know, 
I'm a very shy person. It may not come across as, as I'm talking to you, but um, I'm very shy. It's very hard for me to come up and just start talking to somebody. Right. So um, there was a lot of active effort. I feel like I had to put in or have to put in in order to, you know, develop these professional relationships more than just, you know, what it is in, in on paper, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of these things look good on paper. Like you say, oh, this person is my mentor. This person is, is you know, but for them to really transition from being just a good mentor on paper to being a good mentor for you personally, um, it's actually, for me, it was a lot of, lot of work, right? And still is a lot of work because I still sometimes, I'm not sure what's the right way to stay in touch with somebody, right? So for, for instance, like, I have these professors who like really help me, but do I just send them an email every month and just say, oh, just, just checking in or something like that. To me, that seems kind of weird, but you know, talking to people, they said, that's what you have to do. You just have to stay in touch. Yeah. Like, you know, like, and then the more you communicate, the more you cannot talk, the more opportunities arise that you can kind of, um, they could get to know you a little bit more. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, um, something that happens a lot is, um, like I say, oh, they ask me where I'm from, right? And I'll say, oh, I'm from Grenada. And most people do not know where Grenada is, yeah. right? So I always say, oh yeah, we're you know in the South Caribbean, close to Trinidad. And then the time you say Trinidad, everybody knows, okay, like, you know, close by there. Mm -hmm. So you either get that response that the people don't really know it because we're a small island, or you get the response that, oh, that's the place that the US invaded, you know, back in 83, yep. right? So the older people know about the revolution, uh -huh. And then more, um, then you start seeing it more now that, oh, they have like really nice beaches and like, you know, more the tourist type of scene, right? right? So I think having those three different responses that I keep getting, I try to see how I could capitalize on that, right? That kind of like novelty aspect of, you know, being from Grenada, they don't really know much about Grenada. So it gives you an opportunity to not only tell them about Grenada and like, you know, how wonderful the place is, but also to get to know you a little bit because they, they get a little bit more curious about, okay, you're from Grenada, small island, not much people know about it. How come you're a chem like, you know, what inspired you to be a chemical engineer? What is, why did you go that route and so forth? Well, how did you, you know, what were you considering in a profession? You know, where did you study and stuff like that? So I think, um, you know, there's, there's all these little ways and tactics that you can, you know, take advantage of in terms of getting them, getting people to know you more. But networking is, is, is hard work. It's not easy. So um, I am with you I'm on still, that. <laughs> still learning. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, so in that now kind of switching over to your current role, um, mm -hmm. where you are an assistant professor. And head of a research lab, or what? Yeah. Okay. So, so the way, so the way that professorship works in the U.S. is that everybody starts off at a system professor, right? right. So there's a process called your tenure process, mm -hmm. where once you gain tenure, you have. Um, it's not that you have a permanent job, but you have a more stable job because what happens is everybody starts off as a system professor on a tenure track. You're evaluated after six years in terms of um, your production, in terms of papers, students you graduate, amount of money you bring in, your recognition both uh, locally, as in the U.S., and internationally, right? So mm -hmm. have you gone, have you been invited to give talks or lectures mm -hmm. in, you know, different universities across the U.S. or, you know, in other countries, um, other continents and so forth? So there's, there's actually... Uh, it's a very structured process in terms of how they evaluate you. Mm -hmm. So, but everybody starts off as an assistant professor. And if you're on tenure track, you also get, um, run your own research lab and your own research program in addition to teaching. So right now I am the head of a, of a research lab. Um, so my lab now is just starting. So I have uh, three people in my lab and I'm hoping to hire some, uh, get some more graduate students um, as the years go on. But yeah. Okay, and so now I'm a little bit curious. What was the application process like for um, getting professorship positions? Yes, yeah, so it's it takes a year. It's a it's a long process. It takes a year 
to go through the full process, right? So you pretty much have to, um, it's like a, you're, it's similar to how you're applying for schools, right? But it's way more detailed. So they ask you to write um, a teaching statement in terms of what are some, what your teaching philosophy. So what is your teaching philosophy or your education philosophy in terms of, you know, the, the, the different techniques that you use in order to reach students at different levels, right? In terms of teaching them complex material. They wanna know what kind of courses that you're comfortable teaching and, and you have to develop a course. You have to tell them, if I'm a professor at your institution, I will develop this course, a course that teaches, you know, ethics of technology design or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one, the teaching statement. The second, they ask you for a research statement or a research plan where you have to give them an idea of your research vision. So what are some of the key questions that you're really interested in? Um, how have you uh, worked towards developing your research plan so far? Meaning like your training, right? So how has your undergraduate, graduate school research really laid the foundations for that? And how do you project that into the future, right? So you have to propose research plans and a plan to get funded for like five to 10 years. So they want something more detailed for the first five and then something more visionary for the, the remaining, right? So kind of like big picture extrapolating what would some of these technologies or discoveries look like, right? And then they ask you for a diversity, a diversity statement in the sense of, how would you actively try to enhance diversity um, within your lab or to reach diverse groups of students, right? Because you have to take into account that students are coming in from diverse backgrounds, right? So you have um, low income, you have um, students of different races and ethnicities and so forth. So those are all things you have to take into account. And then also they wanna know um, like your C classic CV. So, you know, what have you done so far and how they evaluate you. So that's kind of like the paper version. You send that all to them. And uh, I think the, the process starts in like September. So you send them all that by September, they evaluate it. And in the meantime, they have like conferences. So I, I attend the Biomedical Engineering Society and the American Institute for Chemical Engineers. So they have these conferences where there's specific sessions where people who are on the job market would, um, would present some of their work and universities that are looking for, to hire people would come in and, and you know, talk to you and so forth. So after all that in December, January, um, the, the departments go from typically about 200 applicants mm -hmm. down to like 30. So they bring from 200 to 30 and then they set up like a Skype call or a Zoom call to kind of filter out again because they can't bring everybody in. So they go from 200 to 30 to about six. And based on how much people they're, they're trying to bring in with a one or two, we could range between three and like six or 10 people. So, um, and then they bring you in, you interview, they, they actually fly you to the university and keep you there for a few days okay. where you give your talk and then you give your, your Chalk talk, which is your vision, you meet with all the faculty, you meet with students, and like you see the area and so forth. And then the process um, typically ends around uh, March or April when you hear back from whether they're going to make you an offer. Then you negotiate offers, you know, in terms of lab space and salary and startup funds and stuff like that. Right. Um, and then you have you decide. So they usually give you a time a hard deadline. So they tell you, okay, we're giving you this offer, which is a written out contract. You have to return it within two weeks. So you pretty much have two weeks to figure out, okay, do I really want to take this job or not? Yeah. Or do I have competing offers and so forth? And because you're, you're interviewing across months, right? So for me, I, my first interview was in January and my last one was in March, right? So I had like offers coming in for the ones in January and not yet for the ones in March. Right. And the schools are being strategic, right? So sometimes they give you a hard deadline because they know that they're trying to get you before um, somebody else. So, um, but then I ended up um, accepting the one at Hopkins. So I went to Hopkins and I did my PhD in chemical engineering, 
but I applied to the biomedical engineering program at Hopkins, which is the number one program in the country and has been for the past like 30 years, I think. Okay. Um, so it was a very strong program and I felt like that would have been, that is a, a top place that I can see my research program developing. So that's, that's how I kind of like ended up here. And so you were able to apply to that specific program based on your research topic in cells and all of that, right? Yeah, actually Hopkins, they didn't have any official openings. Um, so they, they had had four people the year before, so they weren't hiring that year. But at the conference, the Biomedical Engineering Society, I saw one of the professors and I told him, look, I was really hoping to apply to your program this coming cycle. And then he looked at me and he said, um, you know, we don't have an official program, but we're always looking for good talent. So they invited me to come give a talk, which is an hour long seminar on my work. Mm -hmm. And a week before I was to come to Baltimore to give the talk, they started sending me emails and, and turned it from a regular talk into an interview. So I will, they kept me here. Well, they had me come for three days and yeah. over the three days essentially interviewed me on the process. Um, and then they were one of the ones who gave me a very uh, competitive offer. So okay. I ended up picking them. Yeah. Wow. And I'm very happy with my decision so far. So. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah. Um, so you spoke a little bit about kind of getting into um, industry versus academia. So I had a couple questions. First of all, what's the likelihood that somebody on a path similar to yours would actually decide to go into industry and then a few years later move back into academia? Does that happen at all? It happens. It's, it's not as common. Um, and I think there's, there's different rates based on when people go into industry. So for instance, most people in chemical engineering go into industry right after their bachelor's degree, right? And that transition leaving right after bachelor's and then to come back is usually harder, particularly in the U.S. because of the salary that, you know, bachelor level chemical engineers or engineers in the U.S. make, right? Mm -hmm. So when you go to grad school, it is fully funded in engineering and the physical sciences, right? So if you get into a program, that program is fully funded, meaning that they'll they'll pay your health insurance, your health insurance, they'll give you a stipend to live with, and they'll pay your tuition, right? So it's no expenses coming from your pocket, right? But most places you get enough to survive, right? To do to live, right? Yeah. But if you have a, a job, you're getting um, more than twice the amount that they're getting just at a bachelor's level, right? So I had friends, I had one friend who came back from industry to PhD, and he used to always say how difficult it was because you have to change your entire lifestyle, right? Because your spending um, ability is less, right? So now you have to find a cheaper apartment. You can't, you know, like, I guess, splurge as much as some people do. But um, it happens quite a bit if people leave after PhD, right? So after your PhD, most people actually, you know, go into industry. Most people don't go into academia. Mm -hmm. But um, if there's a desire, some people do try to transition back. But most times they don't uh, do tenure track positions. They end up doing... Um, um, non-tenure track positions, which means they don't have to start from scratch and pretty much not having the ability to transfer your industry experience, right? Because in academia, the way you're evaluated for promotion and so forth is different than the way you're evaluated in industry. Mm -hmm. So it happens, but um, I guess how hard it is or how common it is changes based on when you transition. Right. Then it's a different process. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so then going back to something that you, you said even earlier, um, when you were making the decision and you were talking to your mentor and trying to decide which way you wanted to go, what was some of the thought process that you had at that point? Like what was driving you towards maybe choosing industry? So I guess like just, just thinking a bit more the logistics of it, right? So 
it may not be the case in all industry, but I generally thought it was a more linear path in the sense of I apply to an industry job, and if I get that industry job, then there are particular uh, questions that the in, that the company is um, interested in that I'll work on. It's more structured in the sense of you work like you know nine to five or eight to five or something like that. Whereas in academia, it's not that right. So some Sundays I'll be doing I have to do work right, and um, you know I try to move. So I have a family, so I. I, I try my best not to have to do anything on Sundays or on the weekends because um, I don't do anything on, on Saturdays. Um, so it's only the Sundays. Um, so that structure was different between industry and academia, I felt, but I, I was biased, right? Because I had never done an internship and I, all I knew was academia. Um, not only that, the, the compensation and salaries are significantly better in industry than they are in academia. Mm -hmm. And I felt like just that work-life balance and that way of life in terms of, you know, the stress, there's a lot of stress in academia, stress to bring in funds, stress to polish papers, you're constantly being evaluated, you're constantly have to like, you know, to check yourself in terms of, you know, am I being productive? But thinking of it in a sense that it'll just, it may be a little bit easier for me, right? But as I learn more um, about academia, it's not only that, right? So not being inside it in, in academia or not being in a particular field, you don't fully know all the nuances that happens, right? You see from the outside, these people look stressed, but then you also don't see that they really enjoy what they do. And, you know, that passion and, you know, the excitement is able to override a lot of these, um, you know, stressful parts. So I think, you know, in my transition in thought back to wanting to go full on in academia was thinking that, you know, industry may be a little bit of a more linear path in that sense, in the sense that I was thinking, um, you know, work-life balance, compensation, all these different things. But in terms of my personal fulfillment and my personal passion and excitement for discovery and the potential to imp the potential for impact, right? So, you know, there are certain questions that I'm interested in that no other person may be as passionate about and no other person may, you know, push the envelope as far in order to, you know, figure out the technologies or develop something to treat that particular disease. So I think taking in that light. So I think in that decision process, everybody has to essentially like do like a deep reflection as to what it is that I really want and what is it, what it is that I really want to accomplish in that sense, right? Because, you know, as the saying goes, if, if you do something you love, then you don't work a day in your life, right? So right. I didn't want it to be just a job, but I want it to be more of like feeding into my calling. Right. So it's something I'm excited about. Right. Well, it looks like you made the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. So far. <laughs> so far. So yeah. now as a professor and, and with your research lab, how are you hoping to influence your students coming up with you now? Yeah. So definitely um, my students are a critical part, uh, a critical part of what I do. Um, I like teaching. I like mentoring i like that interaction between um this my students right because I, I think there's so many great ideas that people have but sometimes they just need a platform or validation to essentially pursue it a little bit further right so now i have um three people in my lab and um you know it's like critical trying to keep them encouraged trying to you know validate them that you know while still teaching them, right? So teaching them good techniques, right? The importance of scientific integrity and why science has to be at you know, a high quality, but also um, teaching them and, and showing them how to take criticism, right? Because criticism is something that you get a lot. So how would you, how do you deal with criticism and how do you let it not become almost like debilitating, right? Because in academia, you get rejections a lot, right? You apply for a grant, you get rejected. You yeah. submit a paper, you get rejected. You, there's rejection everywhere. 
right? So it's kind of like not letting the rejection hold you back too much, right? And also inspiring them to pursue what they want. So knowing that, you know, my path gives me uh, a, a bias in the sense of I may think that this is the right path for everybody, but it's not, right? Everybody has to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. So I'm very cognizant not to just, um, you know, put my own feelings and intentions on them, but developing and creating an environment where they can think on their feet, right? Because I think it's important as you develop independence, as you work towards becoming a professional, you could, um, you know, think on your own, right? And not be too dependent. But more so, um, I felt that some of the things that I lacked as a, as a student or didn't have access to or didn't have um, someone who could um, you know, talk to me about some of these things, I try to make myself as available as, as possible and try to provide some of these things in the deficits that I felt that was you know, needed or could be needed. And that is something that I intend to do in terms of um, not only my students here, but reaching students back home in Grenada, right? Because that's always been a passion of mine in the sense of, I was a student there. I got all my upbringing there. I have a lot of friends and family back home, right? Grenada has a, has a special place in my heart, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, being in the position that I'm in and not being, or not giving back is in a sense a disservice, right? Because now that you've, um, I guess, made it to, to somewhere else that you know, there is aspiration to, to become or, or to get there, it's kind of like, you know, doing your path, doing your part to kind of um, let that be possible, right? During school, I felt that I didn't, I didn't have a platform enough. I didn't know enough. I wasn't um, established enough to really um, do that. Although I would always try to encourage, um, I remember when I was in, um, when I was doing my PhD, I, went, I used to go back home um, very often, um, almost every year. And there was one time I went back home and I actually taught classes in PBC because one of the teachers was, um, was out, right? So that's like some of the ways that I try to give back or I just try to be encouraging. But now that I, I run a research lab and I've been through the process, the good and the bad, um, I try to encourage um, people that I come in contact with or, or people who reach out to me, particularly Grenadians. I have a, a little bi- a bias for them as, you know, as is... <laughs> as is, is fine, right? Yeah, um, And I know after, um, after the news ran that story in Grenada, when I got the faculty position, quite a number of Grenadians reached out to me. Mm-hmm. And we've been, ha- I had um, a couple Zoom calls with, with many of them. And, you know, hearing their story, hearing their interests, and, you know, just trying to encourage. And what I really want to be is, is a resource, but also more, right, to see there are pl- things that I plan, um, you know, as, as I continue um, for Grenada to see how I can give back. Um, there's a, a couple programs that I think I'm thinking of um, trying to get a few people together to, you know, run back in Grenada. It's sort of like exposing the students to engineering and chemical engineering, something that I never had, right? Yes. I was interested in something that I didn't know what it was and what it entailed. But my excitement for it was enough and the opportunities were um, essentially, I was blessed enough in that sense that the opportunities came at that right time that I was able to, um, to take advantage of it. But understanding that that is not the case for everyone. There are, there's a lack of opportunities in Grenada and trying to see how me as, or how we, I should say, right? Because, you know, through this process, I'm learning that there's a lot more Grenadians, right? In these professional um, jobs and professional roles. And, and that's something why I particularly like what you're doing and your team is doing in the sense of bringing that exposure, right? Because I'm sure there are other Grenadian chemical engineers, right? But I never knew any, right? Mm-hmm. So. 
I think it's it's a combination of um, helping people to be more aware, but also trying to see how we as Grenadians who made it into that next level of the profession, how we can almost create the opportunities that they can go to, right? So as a professor, for instance, um, I hire people from my lab, graduate students, right? I don't have a lot of power in terms of who gets in, right? Because there's a whole process that I'm, you know, very junior in it, right? So right. I don't have much say, but once people get in, then they have the opportunity maybe to work in my lab, right? So what I try to do now is to try to, you know, encourage people apply, like, you know, apply to the program and, you know, you make it to the next level. Mm -hmm. I'll be happy to, you know, like, work with you or if you work with a colleague within the department, I'm there as a sort of like a support, right? So it's kind of like helping in terms of the opportunities for people to, for Grenadians to really excel in these fields that we're a part of, but also we have to reach them earlier, right? There are so many talented, smart Grenadians who are just like they don't know right you don't know what you don't know and if you're never exposed to it you'd never know the possibilities of it so i think definitely you know going back a group of grenadians group of caribbean people group of you know professionals you don't have to be grenadian or from the caribbean but just going to show the students what it is what it means to be a chemical engineer what it means to be an engineer or an architect or in STEM, right? So science, technology, engineering, you is architecture, architecture and math, right? <laughs> With STEAM, right? Yeah. And then um, I've even seen um, there's a double M at the end and medicine, right? So we have, there's a lot of Grenadian doctors, right? But not a lot of, you know, Grenadians in some of these other professions. So I think that is a way that we as, you know, engineering professionals or STEAM professionals could really have a big impact even if we can't create the opportunities, but giving the awareness of it. And then we can, you know, maybe work with the government or, or so forth to try to see how we could impact some of these opportunities. But yeah. there is definitely um, something on us that we that we have to do, right? Amen. I love, I love to hear you talk about that because that is exactly why Grenadian STEAM was formed in the first place. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's, when you talk about brain drain, it's not just, you know, people leaving and going abroad, but just the knowledge and the information that you gain when you do travel abroad and pursue higher studies or even just different experiences, that information or knowing those things, those options that you have, there's so many different types of engineering out there. There's so many different types of medicine. There's, you know, there's an abundance of options that people can choose that you don't even have to leave Grenada to, yeah. to access or to pursue so if That's you just true. you know even if you're not there you know you could still bring that information back to the students who are still trying to find their way so that yeah. everyone doesn't have to be figuring it out as they go like there's there's so much knowledge out there and we're just not sharing it with the next generation that's true. And, and, you know, with that comes opportunities to develop various sectors in Grenada, right? So, exactly. you know, getting back to manufacturing and, and, you know, all these different things. So, because one of the things I know, I'm not, I know I'm not the only Grenadian who goes through that thought process. So you study in the U.S. or you study abroad or so. And then when you're considering, okay, what is it that I'll do, right? So I now have a degree in chemical engineering or mechanical engineering or in architecture or something or, you know, in, in many of these fields. And you decide, okay, if I go back home to Grenada, which most times is what you want to do, right? You want to be back, back in Grenada. And then you say, okay, so what, what can I do? Most times you say, okay, I'll probably just be able to teach, right. right? And then you think about, okay, what's the difference in the compensation between working in Grenada versus working abroad, right? And I know for me personally, um, my family sacrificed so much and you know did so much to get me where I am. Yeah. I wanna be able to have a job that I can give back to them at some point, right? But, so a lot of times the most likely option is 
to stay in the US or stay abroad, you can get compensated more and you can work in the profession that you studied in, right? And then you can kind of give back. But, you know, by having that more awareness, you could have more people doing it. And just the, just the number of Grenadians or Caribbean people um, studying that, you could help to create some of these um, positions in the island, right? Yep. Because, you know, how many times have we heard that there's a big project to go on and there's no Grenadian engineers who could do, who could right. do it, right? They bring in outside people, right? So I think, you know, by having that awareness, there'll also be the creation of opportunity and the creation of these new jobs and new sectors that Grenadian professionals, Grenadian engineers, Grenadian scientists and so forth can really excel in and help to push the envelope, right? Because, you know, many times we think of um, innovation, right? Mm -hmm. All of us have the potential to innovate. And because we have differences in experience, what, how we may innovate or how we think about problems differ, right? So coming from Grenada, I think of, a pro of certain problems different to how some of my friends and colleagues who grew up in the U.S. would think about a problem, right? Because you think of it in a sense of, you know, not everywhere in the U.S. has, you know, not, so Grenada has, you know, hospitals with limited resources. So you have to engineer something for low resource environment, right? Something that's cheap, something that you maybe could reuse or, you know, things like that. Whereas somebody who, you know, had everything in the U.S. may think of the problem more, oh yeah, you could just spend the money and you can get it that way, right? So right. it's more for assuming that everybody could afford a $500 pill, right? Whereas, in Grenada, that, that's not reality, right? So I think, you know, access, development of new sector and also new innovation, right? Amen. I could, I could talk about this for hours, but yeah, <laughs> don't have that much time. Yeah. Um, so kind of going back to your idea of wanting to give back and just not having some of that information and knowledge growing up, what is a piece of advice that um, you wish you would have had that someone would have given to you growing up in Grenada, like maybe 15, 16, around that age? Yeah. I think um, keep asking questions and reach out to people, right? So a lot of times, um, I know I can speak for myself in a sense that you just see what is, right? So you say, okay, like, you know, I'm interested in this, and eventually I'll become that, right? And that's what I had in my mind for, for chemical engineering. So I had an interest in chemical engineering and I was going through school saying, you know, eventually I'll, I'll you know, get to university and study engineering. So my plan was after high school, get a teaching job, work for a little bit, save some money so I can pay the interest on a loan and then to be able to go further, right? But... Um, there are resources available, right? So the scholarships office in the government have, you know, they have scholarships a lot of times and people just don't know. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, talking to people, asking questions and people know people, right? So now you're having more Grenadians who are professionals in these fields that you're interested in. Somebody knows them. They grew up in, you know, this, a village not too far from you or something, or they went to the same high school. Right. Um, so that's why I think also schools, high schools and so forth should develop a database of, you know, your different people in terms of what their professions that you could link back. The same thing they do in the U.S. with alumni yeah. that you can give back in terms of experience and speak to people interested and so forth. I think like that is something. So talk to people, reach out. So for instance, with me, if anybody's interested in engineering, chemical engineering, bioengineering, reach out and I'll be happy to tell you more of what I know and, you know, give advice in terms of those kind of things. So definitely talk to people and actively network. So even if you're, you're shy like me, who, you know, is afraid of talking to people and, you know, don't really know how to, I still struggle with staying in touch with people. Mm -hmm. Um, that yeah so <clears throat> just keep going network keep asking questions talk to people and 
tell people what you're interested in. Because if you don't tell people what you're interested in, they won't know. And if they have a contact and they don't know you're interested, then they, they may not know to give you that contact, right? right? So definitely just keep, and keep looking out for opportunities. So all PhD programs in the US in STEM or, you know, I'm not sure for architecture. I know for uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, PhDs oh, are PhD. fully funded, right? Right. So you have a bachelor's degree, you're interested in doing a PhD, you apply to these schools, right? If you, know, you get accepted, then it's fully funded, right? So it kind of takes out a little bit on the financial resources, which which, you know, coming from, from Grenada, growing up in Grenada can be very difficult in, in many cases, right? I know it was for me. So um, yeah, definitely just reach out, look up opportunities, talk to people because they may know about opportunities. And um, it's something staying in touch, right? So that's something I struggle with, but something I'm actively trying to to go with because as professionals, we should have like what you're doing, right? Have kind of like an, an organization or a database with um with some of these that people could reach out to yeah. and you know, really get more insights. It's important. So on that note, who uh, what is a good way for people to reach out to you <clears throat> if they're interested in learning some more? Yeah, so um they can reach me by email um at jphilip at jhu.edu. So it's two L's. It's J-P-H-I-L-L-I-P at jhu.edu. As well as um, I have a Twitter account, which is Jude M underscore Philip. So if you just like search me, then I'll come up. You can, um, okay. or I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So there's many different ways that um, people can reach out. All right, great. Well, Jude, I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you again for agreeing to join and to talk a little bit about your journey. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime. So with that, thank you. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us on today's Pathway.